Welcome to another podcast by InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting. And I'm your host, Tommy. Actually joined by Jason Staples and Buck Sanders. And Carolina goes down to Georgia, comes back with a 33-7 to loss hanging around their necks. Buck, your take. Ah, you uh, always want to go to me when it's uh, time to talk bad news, <laughs> don't you, Tommy? Yeah, put the burden I know on that Buck. you can shine it up. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll do my best. There ain't no polish in this one. Yeah, it's it was uh, from an offensive standpoint. It, there's nothing to say other than it was just despicable. <laughs> we could talk about we could talk about the the injuries. Uh, obviously, and we should. I mean, definitely that's a factor. At this point, it's not about the guys that they lost last year, Trubisky and Howard, Hollins, Switzer, those guys. It's about the guys they've lost this year. And in my column today, I I wrote a little bit about uh, Itzhak Perlman, who was given a concert once, uh, the violinist, case people don't know who Perlman is. I suspect most people do, though. Uh, he was given a concert at Lincoln Center, New, uh, Lincoln Center in New York City, and not too long into the concert, one of the strings on his violin snapped. What you might not know about Perlman is he's he can't walk. Uh, he's basically wheelchair-bound and just wasn't able to get up stop the concert, go get his violin fixed and come back and finish it. So he finished the concert with three, three strings on his violin. Well, for Chas Surratt, all the s- strings on his violin have snapped. He's, he's missing every string to that offense there is except for the running backs and may have lost Jonathan Sutton reserve linebacker they put over there when they ran out of bodies. So I think for Chas Surratt in particular, you know, I, I hate to see people beat up on him because he's looking out at receivers that all through the spring and the fall, they were second and third team guys. Uh, could they do better on offense? Does that completely explain it? I, I'm not sure that it does. There's got to be a way one would hope that, they can put together a semblance of an offense with the pieces of the puzzle they have left. Getting back Das Newsom will help, but keep in mind this guy is a true freshman, and all of a sudden we're looking at him like you know a savior for the offense. That's that's where we are right now. Is we're in a spot where you know guys like Roscoe Johnson and Bo Corrales, another true freshman, and a handful of other guys that really were buried on a depth chart are now guys that are critical to North Carolina's offense. So I think that explains a little bit of it. It doesn't explain it all. Defensively, I was not depressed by what I saw. The The UNC defense, I thought, took a step forward, even though they did give up a bunch of yards, over 400 on the ground. A lot of that came on two plays. On, they gave up 128 yards on two plays. I know it's uh, a funky way to look at it, but 
take away those two plays, they only gave up 4.2 yards per carry, and we're doing well in the early part of the game, uh, creating some three and outs. I think they got worn down. But I'll leave you with this fact from my rambling preamble here. On the participation report, there were 51 guys that hit the field yesterday for North Carolina. They're allowed to bring 72 on the travel squad. Georgia Tech had 62 players that played. North Carolina 51, Georgia Tech 62. And and that makes a difference, particularly when you're playing a team like Georgia Tech that's going to play keep away from you on the ball all the time. So uh, demoralizing loss and more demoralizing than usual because I don't see how you fix the offense. I don't have any clues. Hopefully, the UNC Brain Trust is way smarter than I am because I just don't understand how you fix this offense at this point in the season with the pieces of the puzzle they have to work with. I'll go to Jason with a question that he should know the answer to. How do you fix Chaz Surratt at this point, Jason? Or is there an issue other than just – or is it just him being a redshirt freshman thrown in a bad situation and he's doing the best he can? Most folks have said say he's regressed, but how much of that is due to the fact of what's going on in front of him? And in front of him, I mean on his line and on his skill position, guys. I mean, he just did not look comfortable at all. I think I tweeted or posted on our little group chat, if I were Brandon Harris, I'd be a little ticked off. I mean, they put Harris in, and he probably throws an interception on his first throw, never to be seen again, and I'd wager probably for good, but we'll see about that. So, Jason, your take on Chaz. There's really not a whole lot that can be done during season, and and the thing I want to I want to emphasize, I mean, he didn't he didn't play especially well yesterday, but going back to what Buck was talking about, the thing I want to emphasize is quarterback. The quarterback position tends to get more credit than it deserves and more blame than it deserves because how how good the quarterback looks is very derivative of the players around that quarterback. So if you have a quarterback that is that, that has no consistency around him in terms of what players are even on the field, that in itself makes things very difficult because you're talking about timing. You're talking about no, you know, guys even knowing where they're supposed to be because at this point, it's not just that, that Carolina's playing backups and, you know, guys that were third stringers at the beginning of the season. They're playing guys in positions that they didn't play at the beginning of the season. So, you know, it's one thing to play an outside wide receiver in, in Carolina's offense. It's another thing if suddenly you're moving inside. Or if, you know, in this particular formation, you've never played at, the, at this spot, but now you've got to move over there. It, it, your, your technique changes, what's expected of you changes. And, you know, fans may go, well, you know, you're just playing wide receiver. It should be the same. Well, it really isn't. And, and so some of that stuff also really affects things. And, you know, this was really Chaz's first real road opportunity against an FBS defense. And, and, Georgia Tech threw some things at him that you know he was uh he wasn't as as ready for as a as a 
young freshman and and he's not he was not put in a position where he was able to 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 throw from a from a position of balance what i mean is they didn't have a bunch they didn't have a running game that they could just go play action and simplify things for him with that they didn't they weren't able to uh to run read option stuff to to really keep uh the defense honest in that respect so he was throwing into the teeth of what the defense was trying to stop when he was trying to throw and he's doing that to a group of second and third tier wide receivers on the roster at this point and all of that feeds together so it's not a simple fix it's not something that you can say oh well you know we just need to fix Chaz Surratt Chaz Surratt is the least of my worries right now you look at how he played against Duke he was one of the reasons they were in that ball game he was not the reason they lost this game. It's, it's a confluence of factors. And this is the thing that, that fans are going to be pretty discouraged to hear this in general. And generally speaking, fans are not willing to hear this sort of thing. But this is not a simple, there's not a simple fix here. This is not a, we'll just call different plays problem. This is not a problem that's going to be solved by, we'll just put a different quarterback in. You know, fans and, and people in general tend to look for easy solutions to things. And usually when analyzing, analyzing offense, the way this, the way it usually boils down to, or what it boils down to for fans is usually, well, they're just calling the wrong plays. It's bad play calling, or we'll just go to the next guy. The next guy can't be this bad, can he? But the reality is generally speaking, the next guy is worse than the guy that's on the field or he'd be on the field because the coaches who see those guys in practice every day and actually have a vested interest in playing the best guy are playing the guy that, that they believe. And usually with some degree of, you know, some, some high probability of being correct that the, that the guy that the, that the guy that they're playing, they're playing the guy that's going to give them the best chance of winning. So yeah, it can get worse. And yeah, the play calling has to protect what you you know protect you against what you uh, what could be worse. So it's not an easy fix when you are losing personnel at the rate that Carolina did. When the things that you were hoping to be able to depend upon as calling cards coming into the year aren't there, it just it changes things, and it's gonna it's gonna take some systemic improvement and. Unfortunately, you know, they're playing a team this next week that you're unlikely to see great results against, even if there is improvement. But the last thing you talked about there in your opening and on your message board column, you you talk about it's no longer about who's not there from last year. It's about who's there from this year. And I was thinking about that. Um, I said yesterday at some point, Last season, season before, instead of running up stats for Howard, Hollins, and Switzer, the guys behind them really needed to get some reps. And then it dawned on me that the guys behind them are hurting out now. So like Jason said, what in your opinion can this staff do to field a competent offense? I mean, you see a team like Troy beat LSU, and I'm not saying that either of those teams are really good, but (laughs) But people look at that and say, well, if they can do it, why can't Carolina at least field a competent offense? Your take on that side of it. Well, you know, just in general, I think, as the uh, 
medieval people used to say, comparisons are odious. <laughs> if you uh, it, take a look at the loss of Southern Cal uh, to Wazoo, when you read that report, of course, Southern Cal was one of the teams picked in the preseason to possibly be a playoff team. And Sam Darnold was the, you know, the second coming of Brett Favre or Tom Brady, whoever you want to name. And Southern Cal is devastated by injuries too and had injuries during that game. And when the you read those game reports, they'll say, Wow, look at all these players that Southern Cal had out. They were missing three offensive linemen and this player and that player. You know, if you want to make a comparison, you can find one to support whatever point you want to make. There's one out there. Trust me. I, I indulge myself in those types of comparisons from time to time. But in terms of what to do to fix this offense, as I was saying in my lengthy preamble, I don't see how you fix this. I just don't see how you make this better when the pieces that you need to make it better are on the sidelines and street clothes. How, how do you get better? As some of these players that are playing for North Carolina have a bright future, I believe. Jason did a video piece, which nobody paid attention to hardly last week, <laughs> on uh, Anthony, Anthony Ratliff-Williams and, uh, you know, his play in the Duke game. And he, he's going to be a great player. He's, you can see it in him. Jason highlighted it in that video, which was excellent, by the way, Jason. I appreciated it if nobody else did. People just aren't in the mood to hear positives, I don't think if you can find one, but I think, you know, ARW is going to be a really good receiver for North Carolina. Is he a really good receiver for North Carolina this year? Maybe not. I mean, I think he's above average receiver, but is he Ryan Switzer? No. And, and speaking of Ryan Switzer, how many times do we see last year, especially, and even the year before, North Carolina needs a first down, and where does the ball go? Ryan Switzer. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's probably erased from our memory banks now, but the Pitt game last year. I mean, and Austin Prowl in that. Yeah. I mean, guys that just Mitch could count on, these guys are going to be where I want them to be. I know where they're going to be. All I've got to do is get the ball to the spot that I know they're going to be. And, you know, there were some comments on the message board, which are correct, that Chaz Surratt was trying to throw the ball to a receiver once he got open. That's not how you do it, right? You, you don't throw the ball to the guy when he's open. You throw it to a spot where you know he's going to be open. and for Chaz Surratt and for these receivers that are learning their trade, they don't know where to be. Chaz Surratt does not know for sure where that receiver is going to be when he throws that ball. Yeah, quarterback has to be able to trust that his guy is going to be in that spot in order to throw to that spot. 
Right. And and Chaz doesn't know that. And and the receivers may not know, as Jason was talking about. Some of them are learning a new position. And ABAC, according to Gunnar Brewer, is the hardest position to learn um, among the receiving groups that he has. And how many ABACs have they lost this year? Three. They're they're on their fourth ABAC, basically. Right. And and if that's the hardest position to learn, you've got Roscoe Johnson, who was at best a third team wide receiver going into the season into the season. Now is your starting A back, a position he's never played. So if it looks like Surratt is throwing the ball, waiting for a receiver to get open before he throws the ball to him instead of throwing to a spot. Probably that's because Surratt has no idea where they're going to be when he throws that ball. Um, so he is trying to make completions, and he figures his best chance is to throw it to them when they're open and hoping that he can get enough zip on the ball to get it there before a defender closes on him. It, it's it's really a hot mess right now, and there's no other way to, to look at it. How you fix this, I don't know that they'll go back to the drawing board next year, next week, and they're going to try to find some ways to, and at this point it's not about those uh, explosive plays that Larry Fedora loves so much. It's about how do you make a first down? You know, how, how are we going to move the chains? And his thinking may have to involve, evolve into that mindset. Instead of fielding an offense that I'm most comfortable with, which is try to get the ball downfield, have big explosive plays, score quickly, it may be the way to change things or at least attempt to fix is to work on a game plan that emphasizes, hey, let's just move the chains. Forget about the big plays. We'll take a deep shot here or there. But we, what we've got to do is stay on the field and move the ball a little bit. How I'm he's going to cha- challenge that just a little bit, though, Buck, because here's the issue. When you're young, when you're banged up and all that and, and all that stuff, and you've got all these new faces in new places. The problem is that you're is that the thing that gets affected first is your consistency, your ability to to go eight, nine plays in a row without making a mistake that's going to put you behind behind schedule and, and affect your ability to get a first down. So if you can't get big plays now, it makes it that much worse because you can't depend upon being being able to get the predictable first downs and all that. You can't you can't just scheme up for, well, okay, we're going to try to get, you know, five different first downs and we'll at least be in field goal range because you get one guy that busts on one play, and now all of a sudden you're behind schedule, and and the drive fails. What I'm gonna I'm gonna I would argue that if anything, you need to find more ways to be creative to try to get some some big plays, some splash plays, and if anything, you try to slow things down. I, I don't think you you can afford to go up tempo with the with the current personnel situation all that much except for where you like you know the the matchups that are on the field or something like that in terms of personnel but beyond that you know i i think you have to try to find ways to scheme a few big plays if anything you try to take an extra shot or two downfield to anthony ratliff williams 
and give him one-on-one 50-50 balls because at this point, let's say he does catch that 50-50 ball for a 40-yard play. What's the likelihood, if you're going to get a 50-50 ball or a 50-50 chance at a 40-yard play, that's higher than the chances of, go, of, of going eight plays to get 50 yards where nobody makes a mistake during those eight plays because you've got so many guys that are just in different spots or, 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 whatever, or, or are trying to figure things out at that point. So that's the really tricky thing is it, seem, it would seem initially, well, you've got to change tactics and try to you know, just, just grind things out. But the offensive line isn't in a position where they can just push people around and, you know, you can just run the football between the tackles anytime you want. And you don't have a quarterback right now who is most comfortable throwing a bunch of possession stuff and is going to be an 80, 90 percent completion percentage on the short stuff. So maybe the best thing is to go the other way. I mean, that's the hard part. If you're coaching in this situation, what makes it so difficult is. Ordinarily, coach, what you do when you're trying to coach is you're trying to say, okay, this is the stuff we can hang our hat on. We may not be able to do this well, but at least we can do this well and we can hang our hat on it. What's the thing right now that Carolina, given the current personnel, you can say, okay, we may not be able to do this, but we can hang our hat on this. I don't see a whole lot. Well, that I'm never going to say I'm wrong about anything. So... <laughs> I will say I see both sides, but I tend to lean towards Mr. Staples. Well, you know, he makes a great point, and I think it speaks to the dilemma that the North Carolina offense has. It's There's no easy fix there, and Jason and I could both be right or both be wrong. And could and I, think go we're both, I think we're really both right in that, and the point is it's not as simple as just, well, just change the play calling or change the approach a little bit because – Okay, so so now you go three and out because you're going because you got you know eight yards on your three plays that were schemed up to get ten, or now you go three and out because you took three deep shots and and none of them were completed. You, you know, you skin the cat or you tried to skin the cat in multiple ways and and each way failed. So it's not as simple as just call different plays. And 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 to your point, Jason, the the thing about young quarterbacks that don't have a lot of experience reading defenses. And let's keep that in mind. Surratt is in a position where he's seeing a different defense every week, stuff he's never seen before. And with a quarterback in that situation, what's the easiest way not to screw up? Throw a deep ball where the only guy that can get to it is your guy. Yeah, worst case scenario is you you just arm punted. Right. And, and, and even then, you know, if you, you take away those complicated reads in the center of the field and figuring out which defensive back is going to give the other defensive back some help and figuring out all that complicated stuff, it's just easier to heave the ball and, and hope your guy can come down with it like ARW did a couple of times uh, against Duke. So I, I get your point. What I'm saying is that Fedora does not have the weapons that he's had the last two years where it's just easier to scheme up explosive plays during the course of the game as opposed to having no other arrow in your quiver but an explosive play. (laughs) 
Right. And then the defense can sit back and wait for you to try on that. And you're not getting the same one-on-one matchups you might otherwise, because you can't run the ball with the same reliability as when you had a, a healthier offensive line, particularly in 2000 and 2015, you know, they had, they were healthy up front and they could run the football and that changed everything. I mean, I keep seeing people, you know, on the in- inside Carolina message boards and so on talking about, you know, Oh, if we could just go back to Marquise Williams, Marquise had a great year, but, but he was also the beneficiary of a, a group of skill guys that were terrific and an offensive line that, that dominated that year. That offensive line was the same five guys all year. And it was, it was a, a dominant offensive line all year up until they ran into Clemson. You're listening to the Inside Carolina Radio Show. We'll be right back after these messages. Some brands offer you low finance or cashback or servicing. Renault don't do ors. We do ands. The Renault Kajar with 1.91% APR and €1,000 cashback and three years servicing, saving you thousands. Renault, the brand with the ands. Visit your local Renault dealer. Finance is made under a higher purchase agreement. Terms and conditions apply. Deposit required. Subject to lending criteria. See Renault.ie. All right. I'm going to move to the defense briefly. We said we were going to do a shorter podcast, but uh, it's kind of spun to a bigger one. Good discussion there. I agree. My take on the offense is, Jason, you talked about flipping the play calling a lot. I, I think they need to get the ball downfield early in the count. Um, because, like you said, when they wait till third down, I mean, that's easy pickings for a defense against this offense. But let me ask you, Jason, and then, Buck, I want your comments. The positive I saw in this game is Carolina's defense, especially in the first half, in total pretty much, but for most of the game on first and second downs, was solid. So my question is, what's going on on third and fourth down, Jason, um, in the second half, it's just the guys are gassed. I yeah, think we can agree with they that. Got, they got tired late. So what are they doing differently on first and second down that that they're not doing on third and fourth down that allows Georgia Tech to have these 15, 18, 19 play drives? But then on one hand, they, they force multiple three and outs. What do you see as the difference there? Tackling is the, mo- is the biggest thing. They, they, there were, there were, there were a lot of situations. The thing, one of the things that stuck out to me, I mean, they did a great job. Like you said, I, I was surprised by how well they were able to get Georgia tech behind the sticks most of the game. And when you do that against Georgia tech, you usually win, but dang, if Georgia tech didn't break a whole lot of tackles on, on third down and in in a few cases on fourth down, there were situations where they had guys dead to rights and all of a sudden he breaks a tackle you know, they have, they have him, you know, five yards behind the sticks. And, and then all of a sudden there's a, he slips a tackle and just gets ahead of the sticks. You, you, you've got to get guys on the ground. You know, they weren't able to do that in those key moments. The, the other thing that happened a few times is, you know, somebody lost leverage. I mean, without actually looking at the, you know, showing the film, it's hard to, hard to uh, explain each individual case because some of them were a little bit different. Each, each one had its own differences in, in terms of, you know, well, this guy lost leverage here. You know, this guy's got to make sure he doesn't let this guy, you know, get to the linebackers. You know, there's, there, there were just little things here and there. But for the most part, they covered they, – they did the same kind of stuff against Georgia Tech on third down that they did on first and second down. But, you know, Tech's kid really, – Tech's quarterback did a really good job of 
you know, they'd drop him to pass or they'd roll him to pass. And all of a sudden he'd just make a move on somebody and break somebody down in the open field. And all of a sudden he's got a first down run in the ball and, and, and different things like that just kept happening. And it's one of those, one of those frustrating things as a coordinator, you've got the right call in, you've got them where you want them. You did it the, the first two times. And then the third time it busts because a guy doesn't get, get a guy on the ground. And, and again, sometimes it's as simple as just make the tackle. That's frustrating. Yep. Buck, your take on that before we wrap the show. Well, I'm going to go to a positive since there's so very few of them to talk about. But the one thing that I did not see in this game against Georgia Tech that I'm pretty sure I've seen in every game that North Carolina's ever played them is at some point during the game after Georgia Tech has bled you to death on the ground, they'll get an open receiver 30, 40 yards downfield and throw for six. It happens virtually every year. I was going to look it up, but I don't think I have time. I can't remember the year. Georgia Tech put, what, 70 on North Carolina, 60-some points on North Carolina that year. That was in Keenan Stadium. Tommy, you may remember. I I don't remember the year, but I think it was like 66 maybe. Yeah, Yeah, it was was a lot. 68 in 2012, I believe, is the one you're talking about, where they – it was uh, the final score was 68 to 50. I believe that's the one you're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, Georgia Tech has had the ability when they've had the right personnel in the game to put a bunch of points on North Carolina over the years. I, I, I didn't think this defensive effort it was anything to get upset about. And now the third down stuff, yeah, they should do a better job. That one particular play, I think it may be on their first drive. They had them like three, third and 13 or so, and Marshall ran for about 20. That that was a backbreaker there. They had a chance to get off the field, and that would have taken seven points off the board in the first half. So, yeah, I, I don't know the exact explanation for their problems on third down. I think as astute as Jason is, he couldn't figure it out either, and there were different things going on. Uh, some of it was Georgia Tech just made a great play. At other times, Jason's right, tackling wasn't what it should have been. I, I don't think it was had had anything to do necessarily with the scheme that North Carolina was playing. No, the scheme was generally was generally sound. So you know, from from that perspective, that's a positive. I mean. Uh, we have seen North Carolina scheme Georgia Tech up and give almost give up almost 70 points. So from a scheme standpoint, I thought uh, John Papuchas early on, I was very interested to see how he moved players around on the defensive line and shifted a lot early. I thought that was – I hadn't really seen that before from Papuchas. So that was interesting. I don't. I don't take away a lot of negatives from the defensive effort uh, against uh, Georgia Tech. They are who they are. You know, you're going to give up a bunch of yards on the ground. They, everybody gives up a bunch of yards on the ground to Georgia Tech. So, I, I thought the absence of that, you know, and a lot of people are banging on the defensive backs. But the longest completion that Georgia Tech had all day was 16 yards. So. Normally, you're going to see a couple of 30 or 40-yard plays when 
defensive backs get sucked up and all of a sudden there's, you know, a Demarius Thomas or somebody running wild in the, in the secondary with nobody around him. So I thought that was a positive as well. Well, I mean, the defense the didn't, the defense didn't play Like you said, there are a lot of positives from the defense and the defense didn't really give up big plays until after the, the, the interception. And that, that interception and then the play following it is what really that broke Carolina's back because the defense held them to 10 points through two and a half quarters. And at a certain point, you know, they, 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 they broke because they, they, you know, it's one of those situations where the pitcher wasn't getting any run support and you know, that, that was that, but they, they got tired more than anything else. There was, there was not a whole lot. And yes, they got tired because they, they didn't get, get tech off the field on third down in a number of cases, but you know, the, the defense, the defense played in a lot of ways better than I thought they would. So there's that, that is a positive. Sometimes it is about the Jimmys and Joes and Carolina's got some Jimmys, but Joe's not in the building anymore with all the injuries and everything else going on. Buck and Joe's in the training room. Buck, Jason, it's been fun to talk to you guys. We'll talk more. Carolina's got Notre Dame next Saturday in Keenan Stadium at 3.30. The Irish look pretty good this year. Guys, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Tommy. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for listening to InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting.